0: Welcome to Choate's Life Sciences Insights, a podcast series hosted by our intellectual property, litigation, and corporate attorneys, covering trending topics at the intersection of science and law. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this first episode of our series on issues relating to the practice in the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, or PTAB. I'm Emily Miller, and I'm a senior associate in the IP litigation group at Choate Holland Stewart. I'm joined today by two of our partners from Choate, who specialize in PTAB practice, Steph Schoenwald, a partner in the patent and IP group, and Sophie Wong, a partner in the IP litigation group. Steph and Sophie have worked closely together on many IPRs and PGRs on behalf of life sciences and technology clients, and they're here today to discuss the recent memo issued by USPTO Director Vidal concerning the fintive factors and discretionary denials in AIA post-grant proceedings. Before we get into the memo itself, Sophie, can
1: you provide some brief background and context for our listeners? Sure. Thanks, Emily. So as you know, the institution of an AIA proceeding is discretionary. That is, the PTAB has the discretion to decide whether to grant or deny institution of any petition for an IPR or PGR. So, for example, the PTAB has express authority under 35 U.S.C. Section 325D to deny institution of a petition when the same or substantially the same prior art or arguments previously were presented to the office. The PTAB also has more general discretion under 35 U.S.C. Section 314A to deny institution, and its recent exercise of that discretion is what has come under scrutiny. So specifically in 2018, the PTAB issued a decision in NHK Spring versus Interplex Technologies, where the board held that the advanced state of a parallel district court litigation involving similar validity disputes could be a factor weighing in favor of denying institution because of concerns over the inefficient use of the office's resources. So if the district court case, for example, were too far along, then the court would decide the same issues before the issuance of a final written decision from the board, then it seemed like a waste of time and effort to have to institute and go through these duplicative proceedings. In 2020, the PTAB further pressed on this point and created the so-called six Fintive factors, which focus on the interplay between IPRs and district court litigation in denying institution. And these six factors all have to do with whether efficiency, fairness, and the merits support the board exercising its discretion to deny institution. First, whether the court granted a stay or may grant a stay if an IPR is instituted. Second, how close the court's trial date is to the board's projected statutory deadline for a final written decision. Third, how much the court and the parties have invested in the parallel district court proceeding. Four, how much of an overlap there is between the issues raised in the petition and the parallel proceeding. Five, whether the petitioner and the defendant in the parallel proceeding is the same party. And six, any other circumstances, including, for example, the merits. And this Fintif decision was designated precedential shortly after it issued in 2020, which means it was binding on all future panels.
0: Thanks, Sophie. This is a recent decision. So can you explain why there's been so much activity and concern about these Fintif factors?
1: Of course. Like you mentioned, it is pretty recent. But since the issuance of the NHK and Fintif cases, the board has actually applied these factors to deny hundreds of petitions where there has been parallel litigation. And the USPTO actually recently published a PTAB parallel litigation study that found that after Fintiv was designated, parallel litigation was raised in about 40% of cases. That means 40% of cases going forward, that was raised as a reason to deny institution. And this obviously has caused concerns among defendants in district court litigations and even in ITC proceedings, because it effectively forecloses the availability of AIA proceedings whenever there is a parallel suit happening. So, for example, in many cases, the PTAB would deny institution because of an impending scheduled trial date. But as we all know, these types of dates are unreliable and often change. And that's exactly what was happening. The PTAB would deny institution because of the proximity of a scheduled trial date. And then the trial would get delayed for whatever reason, whether it's COVID or anything else. And the case would drag on for years when it could have been resolved much more quickly and efficiently through the PTAB. So this has been viewed as being flatly contrary to one of the original stated purposes of the AIA, which was to provide a quick and cost effective alternative to district court litigation for challenging issued patents. And the PTAB's wide application of definitive factors has also been criticized for promoting even more forum shopping. So, for example, if a case is filed in a rocket docket jurisdiction like the Eastern District or Western District of Texas or the Eastern District of Virginia, where the time to trial is purportedly much faster than the resolution of an IPR, the patent owner's choice of venue effectively prevents the accused infringers of the ability to bring forth a PTAB proceeding.
0: So how have litigants responded to the increased number of discretionary denials?
1: They've tried a lot of things. So first, there was a movement within the PTAB proceedings for petitioners to provide these so-called Sotera stipulations to get around the Fintiv issues, which is named after a 2020 decision from the PTAB uh, in Sotera Wireless versus Massimo Corporation. Now, these stipulations essentially state that if an IPR is instituted, the petitioner agrees that it will not pursue in the parallel litigation any ground raised or that could have been reasonably raised in the IPR. And many petitioners have opted for these types of stipulations over the last two years in order to convince the PTAB to institute their proceedings post-Fintive. And many petitioners have also been even exploring sort of the bounds of Cotera stipulation language to try to fit their particular needs and the circumstances of their cases. For example, by simply offering not to rely on the same references rather than stating broadly that they would not pursue the same type of grounds. Separately, there have been multiple attempts to take the fintive factors on appeal to the federal circuit and to the Supreme Court, and so far those efforts have been unsuccessful. Generally speaking, it's a hard issue to take up on cert given the precedent that the decision whether to institute or not is considered a non-appealable decision by statute. However, there have also been attempts to draft and pass legislation now to address the issue, including a bill that was just introduced by Senators Leahy, Corin, and Tillis on June 16th and is still pending. In the meantime, however, the USPTO itself has requested feedback about this issue, and they received over 800 comments from practitioners and interested parties, which is what Director Vidal's recent memo directly addresses.
0: Thanks Sophie. So, as you mentioned, that brings us to Director Vidal's memo. Steph, can you give us some of the basics of that memo?
2: Yeah. Um, so as Sophie mentioned, the director's memo provides binding interim guidance directly in response to feedback that the office has received concerning the PTAB's application of the Fintiv factors and how those fintive factors are being used in discretionary denials. But as noted in the memo, the office is also planning to explore further rulemaking to address this issue. So we should certainly not expect this to be the end or the last word we're going to hear on this particular topic. For the moment, however, the memo provides a few key pieces of information for the bar. First, the memo states that the PTAB will not discretionarily deny petitions under VINTIV if the petition presents compelling evidence of unpatentability, even if there's parallel litigation ongoing. Compelling challenges are defined as where the evidence, if unrebutted in trial, would plainly lead to a conclusion that one or more claims are unpatentable by the preponderance of the evidence. And this particular piece of the memo is really going towards Fintive factor six. And it's based on the idea that Congress granted the office significant power to revise and revisit earlier patents so that we can improve patent quality overall and restore confidence in the presumption of validity that comes with issued patents. Second, the memo states that the PTAB will not discretionarily deny petitions under Fintiv because of parallel ITC proceedings. And that's because the ITC as a body lacks the authority to invalidate a patent. Beyond that, to the extent it makes rulings on invalidity, those rulings are not binding on the USPTO or a district court. So a parallel decision there doesn't really resolve all the issues between the parties. The memo states that the PTAB will not discretionarily deny petitions under Fintiv if there is a Sotera stipulation. And part of the thing that we'll explore here later on is whether or not, you know, what is really meant by a Sotera stipulation and whether that language needs to track exactly what is set out in the Sotera case. It's something that isn't particularly clear in this memo. And finally, the memo states that the proximity to trial should not outweigh the other fintive factors in deciding whether to institute and that the parties can provide evidence, for example, median time to trial statistics for consideration, as well as the number of cases before a judge in parallel litigation, the speed or availability of other case dispositions in that district and before the judge. The PTAB will not weigh the proximity to trial against institution if the median time to trial is around the same time or after the projected statutory deadline for the PTAB's final written decision. So, in other words, if the timeline would be around the same or longer for the trial, then the PTAB no longer will weigh that factor against the grant of the petition. Thanks, Steph.
0: Obviously, there's a lot to unpack there. What do you think is the biggest takeaway from Director Vidal's memo?
2: So first, I think one thing that's encouraging to the bar is that Director Vidal is coming out with action. She's taking stock of what the stakeholders are saying, listening to comments. Again, as Sophie mentioned, there were over 800 comments provided to the PTAB on this issue, and we see that Director Vidal is taking steps to bring clarity and address those comments, which is an encouraging thing to see. Another big point here is that the memo is really designed to add clarity to this issue and, and provide the bar with greater understanding of how the PTAB is going to respond to the various factors and to the evidence that's presented to it. And in some ways, this memo really does help with that. For example, we now know that concurrent ITC proceedings are not really going to serve as a basis for a denial. And we have more clarity about how the PTAB is going to consider the trial dates when they're considering the full Fintive analysis. But in addition, the, the memo does raise some new questions. And one of those questions is about how we understand the guidance that the director is providing to the bar about the merits of the trial and how do we factor that in to the analysis? And so, Sophie, I wonder what your thoughts are about how the merits piece is going to play out here.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I agree with you, Steph, that there's certainly some guidance here that provides a clearer picture on certain parts of the factors and, and discretionary denials. With respect to the merits, though, there's focus now on whether a petition is compelling. And the language is that it's compelling if it plainly would lead to the conclusion that these claims are unpatentable. And that language is a bit vague. It's going to be hard to gauge what that really means without some test cases to see what the board is thinking here. It also appears to put a lot more emphasis on these types of merit-based arguments at a very early stage in an AIA proceeding at the preliminary response stage for a patent owner which is a bit of a departure from current PTAB practice. And as a result, you could easily see patent owners filing longer preliminary responses, which could be the same length as a petition, and even preliminary expert declarations and more evidence at this early stage to poke more holes in the merits of a petition and try to convince the PTAB that this is not a compelling case. And likewise, you could see petitioners including potentially affirmative arguments in their petitions or otherwise filing more substantive replies and evidence to counter the patent owner's arguments. Alternatively, if you are a patent owner, you may not want to raise inventive at all anymore in a preliminary response because you could risk the board instituting and finding on the record that there are compelling merits here. And this may indicate where the board will land ultimately on the grounds and embolden a petitioner going forward through the trial phase.
2: Also, in addition from the petitioner's side, it does raise questions for me because as you mentioned the standard for the marriage factor here isn't significantly different than the standard for institution and so I'd like to believe at least that most petitioners bring their case because they feel like they can meet the institution standard and if they already have that confidence in their case whether or not they need to again kind of address some of these finitive factors out the gates seems to you know be lessened if you believe your case has the merits, why would you need to address any of the other Fintive factors up front?
1: I guess what I would say is I agree with you, but keep in mind that the standard at the moment is that there's a showing of a reasonable likelihood, right, as to this. And so by adding the word plainly here as part of the standard and and talking about a focus on compelling evidence or a compelling merits case, you are distinguishing, whether intentionally or not, the average case that meets the standard versus a case that is so compelling that it would overcome fintive on this ground. So I certainly could see both petitioners and patent owners having to wrestle with what exactly does it mean to be a compelling case and what do I need to put forward to show that that'll get me over this fintive hump. I agree
2: and I think it'll be interesting to see those test cases and how that impacts the steps that both petitioners and patent owners take.
0: Speaking of test cases, and you both mentioned some potential uncertainty around Soterra stipulations based on this memo. And so I'm wondering from both of your perspectives, We see from this memo that Soterra stipulations might be guaranteed to the extent, Steph, you mentioned, the language of the stipulation directly tracks the language in the stipulation of the Soterra case. But do we think that clients will avail themselves of these stipulations even more, or will there continue to be some uncertainty, as Sophie, you mentioned, about the language used in a stipulation, perhaps suggesting that you won't pursue the same grounds or similar combinations or similar references?
2: It will be interesting to see how this plays out. On one hand, you can see that if you feel like you have a strong merits case and that you're going to get through the fintive factors on that basis, then there wouldn't be much motivation for you to file a Soterra Stip and give up additional options for yourself in the parallel district court litigation. And on that basis, it seems likely that we'll see a decrease in the number of Soterra Stips filed. On the other hand, we may see people continue to play with the language a little bit to give themselves that extra assurance that the case may go through. For example, if they think the case is questionable or they see some weaknesses in their case, they may decide to file a Sotera stipulation with the idea that there's, a again, a backup position. But then the question is, do you want to go all the way to the language of the Sotera stipulation as that language was presented in the Sotera case?
1: Yeah, I think it's going to be a really interesting question for clients to grapple with, again, earlier in the process than, you know, typically we've seen at the preliminary stage. There's a lot more consideration now as to what you need to put in, in terms of evidence, stipulation, whatever the language might be at this early stage. So it's important to kind of think of it as this is the gatekeeping time. This is the time when you need to put in sort of your best case and your best arguments on either side. And the director's memo, I think, you know, gives you an expanded basis for fighting incentive as a petitioner. But I think there's certainly more work here for both sides to do to try to understand how to proceed.
2: And then as a final thought, I think we haven't heard from the director, you know, how do we continue to understand factors one and six? So factor one, as Sophie mentioned earlier, really has to do with whether the court granted a stay or may grant a stay if an IPR is instituted. You know, the questions about what kinds of evidence and arguments we might see around May granting a stay going forward may be played out a bit more. We may see more petitioners and patent owners playing with that factor now that we have more guidance around the other factors. And factor six is the sort of fuzzy factor here. If there are any other circumstances that may play into this decision, historically, this hasn't been a factor that's played a large role, but we may see the bar getting creative with new arguments that would impact the overall analysis because again, there's a lot of wiggle room with that factor and it really hasn't been addressed in this memo. So there's still creativity to be employed.
0: Thank you both so much. Clearly, this is a very exciting time in PTAP practice and I want to thank everyone for listening and thank you to Sophie and Steph, especially for their insight. For more information, please visit www.choat.com You can also listen to additional podcast episodes in the newsroom of our website and subscribe to them wherever you listen to podcasts, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. The information presented in this recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice for a specific situation. If you wish to obtain legal advice, you should retain an attorney and explain the facts of your particular situation